Chapter 12 of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Fournier, Centerville, Virginia, USA. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. The Corsican and the Creole. Josephine de Beauharnais. Of the many women who succeeded one another with such bewildering rapidity in the favor of the first Napoleon, from Desiree Clary, daughter of the Marseilles silk merchant, the little wife of his days of obscurity, to Madame Valeska, the beautiful Pole, who so fruitlessly bartered her charms for her country's salvation, only one really captured his fickle heart, Josephine de Beauharnais the woman whom he raised to the splendor of an imperial crown, only to fling her aside when she no longer served the purposes of his ambition. It was one October day in the year 1795 that Josephine, Vicomtesse de Beauharnais, first cast the spell of her beauty on the ugly little Corsican, who had then got his foot well planted on the ladder, at the summit of which was his crown of empire. At twenty-six, the man who, but a little earlier, was an out-of-work captain, eating his heart out in a Marseilles slum, was general-in-chief of the armies of France, with the disarmed rebels of Paris groveling at his feet. One day, a handsome boy came to him, craving permission to retain the sword his father had won, a favor which the general, pleased by the boy's frankness and manliness, granted. The next day, the young rebel's mother presented herself to thank him with gracious words for his kindness to her son, a creature of another world than his, with a beauty, grace, and refinement which were a new revelation to his bourgeois eyes. The fair vision haunted him. The music of her voice lingered in his ears. He must see her again. And before another day had passed, we find the pale-faced, grim Corsican, with the burning eyes, sitting awkwardly on a horsehair chair of Madame's dining-room in her small house in the Rue Chateraine, nervously awaiting the entry of the Vicomtesse, who had already played such havoc with his peace of mind. And when, at last, she made her appearance, few would have recognized in the man, who made his shy, awkward bow, the famous general with whose name the whole of France was ringing. It was little wonder, perhaps, that the little Corsican's heart went pit-a-pat, or that his knees trembled under him. For the lady whose smile, and the touch of whose hand sent a thrill through him, was indeed, to quote his own words, beautiful as a dream. From the chestnut hair which rippled over her small, proudly poised head, to the arch of her tiny, dainty feet, made for homage and for kisses. She was all glorious without. There was witchery in every part of her, in the rich color that mantled in her cheeks, the sweet brown eyes that looked out between long fringed eyelids, the small delicate nose, the nostrils quivering at the least emotion, the exquisite lines of the tall, supple figure, instinct with grace in every moment and above all, in the seductive music of a voice, every note of which was a caress. 
Sixteen years earlier, Josephine had come from Martinique to Paris as bride of the Vicomte de Beauharnais, with whom she had led a more or less unhappy life, until the guillotine of the revolution left her a widow, with two children and an empty purse. But even this crowning calamity was powerless to crush the sunny-hearted Creole, who merely laughed at the load of debts which piled themselves up around her. A little of the wreckage of her husband's fortune had been rescued for her by influential friends, but this had disappeared long before Napoleon crossed her path, and at last the light-hearted widow realized that if she had a card left to play, she must play it quickly. Here, then, was her opportunity. The little general was obviously a slave at her feet. He was already a great man, destined to be still greater. And if he was bourgeois to his coarse fingertips, he could at least serve as a stepping stone to raise her from poverty and obscurity. As for Napoleon, he was a vanquished man, and he knew it, before ever he set foot in Madame's modest dining-room. When he left, he trod on air, for the Vicomtesse had been more than gracious to him. The next day he was drawn as by a magnet to the Rue Chateraine, and the next and the next, each interview with his divinity forging fresh links for the chain that bound him. And, at each visit, he met under Madame's roof some of the great ones of that other world in which Josephine moved the old noblesse of France, who paid her the homage due to a queen. Thus, vanity and ambition fed the flames of the passion which was consuming him, and within a fortnight he had laid his heart and his fortune, which at the time consisted of his personal wardrobe and his military accoutrement, at the feet of the Creole widow. And one March day in 1796... Napoleon Bonaparte, general, and Josephine de Beauharnais were made one by a registrar who obligingly described the bride as twenty-nine, thus robbing her of three years, and added two to the bridegroom's twenty-six years. After two days of rapturous honeymooning, Napoleon was on his way to join his army in Italy, as reluctant a bridegroom as ever left Cupid at the bidding of Mars. At every change of horse during the long journey, he dispatched letters to the wife he had left behind, letters full of passion and yearning. In one of them he wrote, When I am tempted to curse my fate, I place my hand on my heart and find your portrait there. As I gaze at it, I am filled with a joy unutterable. Life seems to hold no pain, save that of severance from my beloved. At Nice, amid all the labors and anxieties of organizing his rabble army for a campaign, his thoughts were always taking wings to her. Her portrait is ever in his hand. He says his prayers before it. And, when once he accidentally broke the glass, he was in an agony of despair and superstitious foreboding. His one cry was, "'Come to me, come to my heart and to my arms,' Oh, that you had wings! Even when flushed with the surrender of Piedmont after a fortnight's brilliant fighting, in which he had won half a dozen battles and reaped twenty-one standards, he would have bartered all his laurels 
for a sight of the woman he loved so passionately. But while he was thus yearning for her in distant Italy, Madame was much too happy in her beloved Paris to lend an ear to his pleadings. As wife of the great Napoleon, she was a veritable queen, fawned on and flattered by all the great ones in the capital. Hers was the place of honor at every fete and banquet. The banners her husband had captured were presented to her, amid a tumult of acclamation. When she entered a theater, the entire house rose to greet her with cheers. She was thus in no mood to leave her queendom for the arms of her husband, whose unattractive person and clumsy ardor only repelled her. When his letters calling her to him became more and more imperative, she could no longer ignore them. But she could, at least, invent an excellent excuse for her tarrying. She wrote to tell him that she was expecting to become a mother. This, at least, would put a stop to his importunity. And it did. Napoleon was full of delight, and self-reproach at the joyful news. "'Forgive me, my beloved,' he wrote. "'How can I ever atone? You were ill, and I accused you of lingering in Paris. My love robs me of my reason.' and I shall never regain it. A child, sweet as its mother, is soon to lie in your arms. Oh, that I could be with you, even if only for one day. To his brother Joseph he writes in a similar strain. The thought of her illness drives me mad. I long to see her, to hold her in my arms. I love her so madly, I cannot live without her. If she were to die... I should have absolutely nothing left to live for. When, however, he learns that Madame's illness is not sufficient to interfere with her Paris gaieties, a different mood seizes him. Jealousy and anger take the place of anxious sympathy. He insists that she join him, threatens to resign his command if she refuses. Josephine no longer dares to keep up her deception. She must obey, and thus... In a flood of angry tears, we see her starting on her long journey to Italy, in company with her dog, her maid, and a brilliant escort of officers. Arrived at Milan, she was welcomed by Napoleon with open arms, but, after two days of rapture and caresses, he was face to face with the great crisis of Castiglione. His army was in imminent danger of annihilation. His own fate and fortune trembled in the balance. Nothing short of a miracle could save him, and on the third day of his new honeymoon he was back again in the field at grips with fate. But even at this supreme crisis he found time to write daily letters to the dear one who was awaiting the issue in Milan, begging her to share his life. "'Your tears,' he writes, "'drive me to distraction. They set my blood on fire.' Come to me here, that at least we may be able to say before we die we had so many days of happiness. Thus he pleads in letter after letter, until Josephine, for very shame, is forced to yield, and to return to her husband, who, as Maison tells us, was all day at her feet as before some divinity. Such days of bliss were, however, few and far between for the man who was now in the throes of a titanic struggle, on the issue of which his fortunes and those of France hung. But when duty took him into danger, where his lady could not follow, 
she found ample solace. Monsieur Charles, the clerk's adjutant, was all the cavalier she needed, an Adonis for beauty, a Hercules for strength, the handsomest soldier in Napoleon's army, a past master in all the arts of love-making. There was no dull moment for Josephine, with such a squire at her elbow, to pour flatteries into her ears and to entertain her with his clever tongue. But Monsieur Charles had short shrift when Napoleon's jealousy was aroused. He was quickly sent packing to Paris, and Josephine was left to write to her aunt, I am bored to extinction. She was weary of her husband's love rhapsodies, disgusted with the crudities of his passion. She had, however, a solace in the homage paid to her everywhere. At Genoa, she was received as a queen. At Florence, the Grand Duke called her cousin. The entire army, from general to private, was under the spell of her beauty and the graciousness that captivated all hearts. She was, too, reaping a rich harvest of costly presents and bribes, from all who sought to win Napoleon's favor through her. The Italian campaign at last over, Madame found herself back again in her dear Paris, raised to a higher pinnacle of queendom than ever, basking in the splendors of the husband whose glories she so gladly shared, though she held his love in such light esteem. But for him, at least, there was no time for dallying. Within a few months he was waving farewell to her again, from the bridge of the Océan, which was carrying him off to the conquest of Egypt, buoyed by her promise that she would join him when his work was done. And long before he had reached Malta, she was back again in the vortex of Paris gaiety, setting the tongue of scandal wagging by her open flirtation with one lover after another. It was not long before the news of Madame's goings-on reached as far as Alexandria. The dormant jealousy in Napoleon, lulled to rest since Monsieur Charles had vanished from the scene, was fanned into flame. He was furious. Disillusion seized him, and thoughts of divorce began to enter his brain. Two could play at this game of falseness. And there were many beautiful women in Egypt, only too eager to console the great Napoleon. When news came to Josephine that her husband had landed at Fréjus and would shortly be with her, she was in a state bordering on panic. She shrank from facing his anger, from the revelation of debts and unwifely conduct which was inevitable. Her all was at stake, and the game was more than half lost. In her desperation, she took courage in both hands and set forth, as fast as horses could take her, to meet Napoleon, that she might at least have the first word with him. But as ill luck would have it, he traveled by a different route and she missed him. On her return to Paris, she found the door of Napoleon's room barred against her. After repeated knocking in vain, says Monsieur Masson, she sank on her knees, sobbing aloud. Still the door remained closed. For a whole day the scene was prolonged, without any sign from within. Worn out at last, Josephine was about to retire in despair when her maid fetched her children, Eugène and Hortense, kneeling beside their mother, 
mingled their supplications with hers. At last the door was opened, speechless, tears streaming down his cheeks, his face convulsed with the struggle that had rent his heart. Bonaparte appeared, holding out his arms to his wife. Such was the meeting of the unfaithful Josephine and the husband who had vowed that he would no longer call her wife. The reconciliation was complete, for Napoleon was no man of half measures. He frankly forgave the weeping woman all her sins against him, and with generous hand removed the mountain of debt her extravagance had heaped up, debts amounting to more than two million francs, one million two hundred thousand of which she owed to tradespeople alone. But Napoleon's passion for his wife, of whose beauty few traces now remained, was dead. His loyalty only remained, and this, in turn, was to be swept away by the tide of his ambition. A few years later, Josephine was crowned empress by her husband, and consecrated by the Pope, after a priest had given the sanction of the church to her incomplete nuptials. She had now reached the dazzling zenith of her career. At the Tuileries, at Saint-Cloud, and at Malmaison, she held her splendid courts as empress. She had the most magnificent crown jewels in the world, and at Malmaison she spent her happiest hours in spreading her gems out on the table before her, and feasting her eyes on their many-hued fires. Her wardrobes were full of the daintiest and costliest gowns, of which, we are told, more than two hundred were summer dresses of percale and of muslin, costing from one thousand to two thousand francs each. Less than six years of such splendor and luxury, and the inevitable end of it all came. Napoleon's eyes were dazzled by the offer of an alliance with the eldest daughter of the Austrian emperor. His whole ambition now was focused on providing a successor to his crown. Josephine had failed him in this important matter. And in Marie-Louise of Austria, he not only saw the prospective mother of his heir, but an alliance with one of the great reigning houses of Europe, which would lend a much-needed glamour to his bourgeois crown. His mind was at last inevitably made up. Josephine must be divorced. Her pleadings and tears and faintings were powerless to melt him. And one December day, in the year 1809, Napoleon was free to wed his Austrian princess, and Josephine was left to console herself as best she might, with the knowledge that at least she had rescued from her downfall a life income of three million francs a year, on which she could still play the role of Empress of the Elysee, Malmaison, and Navarre, the sumptuous homes with which Napoleon's generosity had dowered the wife who failed. End of The Corsican and the Creole